Welcome to First Time Through. New Eyes on Castle Rock, Season 2. I'm Kim Payne. And I'm Otto Mullins. This is our podcast chronicling our journeys through the Stevenverse. Uh, 280 pages is a lot. It's basically like reading the entirety of uh, Mr. Mercedes. I know. It's a it's a chunk. This section isn't too bad. It's um, pretty cut and dry, pretty straightforward because it's just laying the groundwork. Uh, I get what you said. I get what you did there. It's <laughs> cutting the groundwork. Ha 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 ha. Welcome to First Time Through, New Eyes on Castle Rock. Thank I'm you. your host, Kim Payne. <laughs> <laughs> I almost just went and said I'm Kim Payne. Just continued on with it. <laughs> Good morning. Happy anniversary, all. Yes, happy podcast anniversary. This is a surprise special episode coming at you uh, the day after. We just had a, an episode come out the day before this one. That's crazy. You guys are working so hard, and thank you. We know we are working really hard. Two um, episodes in one week for you guys. You, also, you guys know how special you are. Before these two episodes came out, we were already 12 downloads ahead of our previous high, so we're already... Um, really uh trending upwards yeah and, and we can't thank you guys enough for making this first year so much fun for our one year anniversary we decided to jump into a small throwaway one-off novel called it yeah um, you know just yeah, a few know. pages uh this is probably i mean misery and the stand are both i would argue that it is Stephen King's most po- like well-known product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I would say that that is probably not inaccurate. Like if you were to stand some, but like Randall Flagg and you were to stand uh, uh, Pennywise next to each other, everybody knows who Pennywise is. Pennywise right. is not- Pennywise is a cultural icon at this point in time. He's not just like a character in this novel anymore. He is. He's Pennywise. He's it. Exactly. Everybody knows who he is. I mean, there was even that trend a couple of years ago with all the people dressed up as clowns being all spooky and scary. Okay, real quick, just a segue. Isn't it terrifying how that trend just disappeared? Yeah, kind of it is. And, you know, that's the scariest part about all of that to me, if I'm being honest, is all of a sudden they were just doing their thing, enjoying life, being clowns. And then it's like they all got the same message to just stop. Right. And then poof. And then poof. And then, you know, are they going to come back in a few years? Or were we all collectively imagining ghost lights were starting to populate on Earth? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was all like a recon mission from the uh, extraterrestrial, uh, not extraterrestrial, extra dimensional beings. Right. Yeah. With that, let's, um, Stephen King, I do feel like this one has got, this one... This one has got to have an important place in the timeline, Kim. Where, where, where does it sit at? Do you like where, where? What are we looking at? Like, where is this in Steve's life? We're looking at this was right before Misery, so we're looking at seriously, seriously coke fueled 
drug, mm-hmm. alcohol, crazy. You know, and his kids, um, he dedicates this book to the kids. And when he finishes writing it, they are 14, 12, and 7. I know you don't have any kids, but let me tell you, having two kids two years apart and then having one seven and a half years behind the second one, that's a lot. You know, he, there's have, only five uh, years between his second and third. There's seven and a half between my second and third. But, man, that is just, a lot. Mm, well, especially, like, as uh, a young man who has dabbled in a lot of experiences in life, um, there's a certain time during the cocaine imbibement process where you start to come down off of that drug and uh, everything's super frustrating and awful and there's not a, a single positive thing in this world. Um, so I can only imagine what it would be like to have a two-year-old while you're also coming down off of cocaine. That right. sounds hard. That sounds, that sounds terrible. And I've time. never even tried that, but that sounds really terrible to me. So we have uh, our Lord and Liege, um, Steve, uh, is out here, three kids working, uh, you know, and Steve's talked about in the past, uh, his work habits when he was younger was just, you know, he'd wake up right for 12 hours and be like done for the day. Um, and that's what we're seeing here. Um, 280 yeah. pages. This yeah, we, is, we, we bit off a big chunk of this book. This is a 1200 page novel. So today in this episode, we're going to be covering pages one through 290 which would put us up to chapter seven i know what you're thinking 290 isn't that just the length of mr mercedes yes yes it is in fact you're right good eye good eye you and and we separated in two yeah Yeah. (laughs) we're going to endeavor to do it in four episodes so um we should be done with it by the end of this year and uh moving on to something else (laughs) <laughs> it's going to make for some long days yeah, and pleasant I, nights. <laughs> it wasn't like reading through this opening part wasn't too bad. There is some very dull moments. Um, it just takes, whereas the stand, it felt like, you know, just constantly you were going uphill and there was constantly more stuff being added to the plot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of times during this one that uh, it's like the exact opposite. They're not, it doesn't feel like Steve is adding to the plot of the story. He's adding to the world he's created instead. Yeah, he's he spends a lot of time... When you get to the end of this first section, you know your seven main characters. I would argue real quick that there's eight main characters, too. Eight, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're eight because main characters because you also kids. have... And then right. the town of Derry is a whole whole character of its own. Like it's it the, really is. Like honestly, like that's the the biggest point that I think from my reading so far, and like the biggest takeaway that I have, and that I'm going to put out there. This isn't even the story of any of these kids. It's not the story of Pennywise. It's the story of this town, and it's giving me some of the most useless township knowledge and history. And it's like I know. As someone that has seen some parts of the further end of the story, I do know that some of it is important. So, you know, I do like reading and seeing a couple of things. Um, but for the most part, uh, yeah, it hits that same vein. Yeah, but I, you're not wrong. It really is the story of Derry. It's just, and it's the story of Derry told from 
really these kids perspective and and as we get further into it really as from Mike's perspective and I know you've seen the movie so I don't feel like that's a spoiler so I know you know that no and like I think that like you'll be good about uh we had a uh, viewer or a listener um who wrote and told me that uh, they really enjoyed the way that you foreshadow things throughout our podcasts. So um, I'm sure that we'll be able to uh, find, walk that fine line. Well, let me, let's go ahead and knock this recap out of the way, guys. Let's get it. Welcome to Stephen King's It. Uh, I'm not talking about just like a specific book of his that is like, this is it, this is the book. No, the book is actually entitled It, I-T, and it makes texting about it incredibly confusing. Going through the first 280 pages, you would think we're going to get super far into this novel. However, we don't. We only got up to chapter 7 out of 23, so I guess that's not too bad. Really, it's almost, you know, a third through the chapters. Mm -hmm. Um, So the book is split up. Um, you know, I think it's going to be interesting, you know, if you're someone that's only ever seen the movies, um, basically the best way to explain it to you is the book is split up between the kids' timeline and the adults' timeline, but it's intermingled throughout the story. They're motivated sections, you know, there are sections where Ben will remember something from his childhood because he sees something as an adult and we get lost in like a daydream aspect of him remembering his childhood, um, and these different kinds of elements like that. Um, and that's the biggest difference for, you'll see from the 2011 or 2015-ish uh, series movies. Whereas I yeah. think in the 90s movies, I haven't seen those ones. Those ones are actually split in or split between the two perspectives like the movie is. Or like yes. the book is. Like the book is. Yeah, they, they are. We start off part one in 1957. Our story takes place in two different time periods. 1957 and 1958, that area. And then 1984 and 1985. Um, importantly, it is 28 years later, essentially. So, during 1954, Bill, one of our main characters, arguably the... 57. Like, 57, thank you. 57. Um, arguably, Bill is the main protagonist of the story. Um, you, you could definitely say that he's the like main hero. Um, he's Stu, uh, when I'm comparing this to The Stand. Um, okay. You know what I mean? Yep. And so he is hanging out at home one day. His little brother's out playing with a boat in the rain. And then um, his little brother goes down to look into a storm drain. And there's a clown in there who rips his arm off. And you're just like, yeah, this is great. Here it goes. From there, it almost it's kind of like a, a jump cut forward. We jump cut to 1984. And there are two gay men uh, on a date at the fair. Uh, some homophobes from uh, the local town come out and uh, just start to beat the heck out of these people. Um, and as they're about to, uh, he jumps. He ends up getting thrown over the edge of the bridge. And as he's about to like crawl away and get away, Pennywise shows up. Or he's not Pennywise yet. He's just it. It shows up and uh, takes him. Mike Hanlon ends up uh, initiating these calls. After he ends up being murdered, we get introduced to six characters. These six characters are all being called in 1985. So one by one, we're introduced to our characters. We're introduced to Stanley, who uh, is um, 
I don't really. We'll get into each character as we get into their sections. Um, but we get introduced to Stanley. Um, we are then introduced to Richie Tozier. Right? Tozier? Towser? Yep. Tozier. Tozier. And then we are introduced to Ben Hanscomb, um, the best character in the story. Then we are introduced to. Eddie Kasparak, the worst character in the novel. And then we're introduced to Beverly. Then we're finally introduced to Bill Denborough. Um, and we get this uh, very interesting, it's almost a history of dairy. And what this is, is it's written from Mike Hanlon's perspective. Mike Hanlon is the one person that they don't talk about uh, in those six phone calls because he is the one making those phone calls. So then we get an entire chapter that is just him and his research that he's been doing into dairy. And we find out a lot of information about the town and the place around it and all these different cases that have eerie similarities to the current cases that they're dealing with. And then we get into part two, which is in June 1958. Ben is asleep or is on an airplane. He falls asleep and he starts to remember the time when school got out of, or when school let out for the summer. Um, that summer, or not that summer, that year he had had a pretty uh, awful interaction with a boy named Henry Bowers. Henry Bowers ends up chasing him carving his first, uh, the letter H into Ben's tummy, and then he ends up falling backwards off, and he falls off into the Barrens, meaning his soon-to-be new best friends, Bill and Eddie. After he meets them, Henry Bowers and his crew have started to chase Ben through the woods. Uh, They end up escaping, and they make a pact to come back the next day and build a dam together. As they are leaving for the night, we end up doing a little bit of it. Uh, you know, in my head, it's like a zoom out. We zoom out, and we find out that there are more boys that have been dying and missing. In fact, that there's one boy that's been missing uh, in the last week or so. And then we get introduced to Mike Hanlon's, uh, kind of like his home life. And we find out that he's been having these experiences with some kind of odd entity all over town. Um, he went to a... Uh, um, it was like a, a textile plant that exploded. Well, it's an ironworks. Ironworks, that's what I was looking yeah. for, um, that yeah. exploded. And he ended up having a really terrifying experience there. And throughout the course of the last uh, 280 pages, we've discovered that this is not the first, he's not the first kid to have this. Almost every single one of these kids has a terrifying experience that they've either completely repressed or they remember bits and pieces of. Because then mm-hmm. Mike Hanlon, um, because the reason that he thought about this, he was in a dream. He had woke up one day. Um, he had had like a dream about it. Ended up pedaling over to where its newest like murder victim had laid, um, and ended up um, seeing these scratch marks in the ground. And mm-hmm. he um, sees it, and he freaks out and runs home. And that's where we ended. It's kind of just you know it really set it all up. I'm very excited to get into this. There's some really good stuff. Um, uh, each character's introduction is really fantastic. Uh, it's really well done. Um, I'm not going to, like, we'll talk about I have a couple of complaints about stuff, but for the most part, like, this is probably the most solid, like, writing so far, in my opinion. I think that this is, there's not, there's a lot of wasted breath, but not a full wasted page. Some of these, the sentences, I'm just like, ugh, you just thought that sounded nice, so you kept that in there. That's not super needed detail at all, but okay, cool. Um, But a lot of it is very plot-driven, and it's very uh, informationally, it's very expositional. It is. This section really is, and, you know, 
I, it's no secret that this is my favorite book. Um, I think I've said that probably in every single episode. <laughs> but uh, one of the reasons why I love this book is because you can get lost in it. You know, you really feel like you're there. He does yeah. such a good job of, of setting the scene and setting the mood and setting how it feels. And, and you know these people. You feel like you're there. Absolutely. He does a good job with that in all of the books. But this one, I think, is just like next level. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, too, it's uh, I think it's because he takes such a long time to establish the place where they come from and the place they grow up in and the place that they live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and like you said, that that I think he does that because that is the other main character in the book. Are you ready to get into this analysis? I am. I'm super. I've been ready for this for a year. Right on. <laughs> Let's get to it. I don't know if everybody that has listened to the main episodes has listened to the bookmarks. I imagine so. But we do have a segment of our bookmarks called What Are You Reading? Um, and uh, Kim, do you want to tell everybody about that segment in case they haven't really been uh, listening to the bookmarks? Okay, so I really love to know what other people are reading. I read a lot of Stephen King, surprising no one. But, you know, it's always good to find out what other people are reading because if they're listening to us, they're obviously Stephen King fans. And, you know, it, it gives us some different things to look at, some other books to look at, because, you know, we might have something in common. Um, I know that uh, there was a comment on the last uh, What Are You Reading post that it, from someone who knows that this is my favorite book, and they were also rereading it. So I'm pretty excited to for them to listen to it and talk through it and can't wait to, to hear their perspective of what we think, too. So um, check out those bookmarks and follow our Facebook page so that you can also let us know what you're reading. Because, you know, we may read it and talk about it on a bookmark. Or if you just have ever finished a novel and you have a strong opinion and you want to tell someone about that opinion, that there's so many times where I've finished a book and I just wish that, like, man, I wish I could just write, like, a quick, like, two-page essay about this book real quick and send it to someone. Uh, we're the people that you can send it to. I promise I'll read it. I'd love to read it, and uh, we'll take the best parts of it, and we'll put it on air. Um, just taking the time to, like, we want to know, like, what you read and why you read it. Uh, just because I'm also looking for other books. I think if I continue to just only read Stephen King, I might, uh, there might be a small level of insanity that happens. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. Because right now it's just Stephen King in manga, and I, I, I need to mix it up some. I finished Joe's book, and I finished uh, Crazy Is As Crazy Does. Um, congratulations to the winner of that giveaway announced yesterday, by the, or the other day, by the way. Yeah, I need some new stuff to read, so please uh, follow, give us a like on Facebook specifically, uh, and let us know about what you're reading. Look out for those posts. Or just give us an email at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and we'd love to read through those emails uh, and your requests and everything as well. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we do have um, people helping us with social media now because we are moderately <laughs> social media inept. Um, and by that, he means terrible. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm getting pretty good at scheduling Facebook posts, but other than that, uh, we're struggling. Um, yeah, I'm trying. But, 
<laughs> Please give us a like on there. Um, we're also going to be revamping our Patreon here in the next couple of weeks, months, uh, when the time is right. And uh, that will be really great. But it is a way for you to directly support us. And frankly, it is one of the most tangible ways that you can support us. Um, we have tiers starting off as low as $2 for uh, additional content and early access to episodes. And uh, we'd really love it if you were able to go and join us over there. Um, all of our patrons, uh, we always try to make sure we always include their feedback and their content in any episode as soon as they're, uh, it's requested. And I believe that uh, that's really all we have to talk I, about. I think that's it. I think that we can dive into the meat and potatoes of this book now. start off in 1958 uh, 57 after the f- 57. 57 after the flood uh, after the flood called part one the shadow before um, this is pretty much uh, so here's one thing just you know I just want to start it off with this there's a really cool metaphor that Steve does right here at the beginning with this paper boat And right at the beginning, um, you know, he says, as far as he can tell, it began with a paper boat going down a gutter swollen with rain. And then at the end of this chapter, he actually has a a segment where he says, um, and the paper boat washed completely down the stream, never to be seen of again. Uh, And I thought that that boat was a really great and powerful illusion just for the way um, Georgie's death is going to be such a massive blow to the story. It's going to initiate everything. It's going to start everything. It's going to be so important. And then it's just slowly going to float away. Yeah. Float well, away. and I love I love the, the closing line of this chapter is, and there it passes out of this tale forever. Yeah. And it's kind of that George is gone forever. But he's always going to be mentioned. He's always going to be there. There's always going to be that feeling of it. So the physical entity of Georgie is gone. But he'll still always be there. And I really liked that uh, metaphor he did during mm-hmm. that. And during this first chapter, um, we are introduced to Bill, who is hanging out. Uh, he's not feeling great. But we are introduced to him uh, interacting with his younger brother. And he helps him build a boat. And Georgie goes out to play with this boat. And it's just pouring rain out. It's the type of rain where at 3 p.m. the, the sky is black. Uh, and it feels like it's nighttime out because of how much rain is coming down. Mm-hmm. And Georgie's out there. He's playing around. He's goofing. And, and it's better than it has been. That's important is the, while it is black and dark and rainy still, it had been even worse leading up to this. Mm-hmm. So it's so, finally backing off a little bit. So Georgie's stir crazy and wants to get out of the house. And um, he's pushing his little boat down the side of the road. And uh, just, you know, down the stream, like we've all, we all know that, uh, that stream that forms on the side of the road. And as he gets to a cutter, all of a sudden he looks down and bada bing, bada boom, there's a clown just sitting in the train. Uh, And it confuses the heck out of Georgie, to say the least. I think, you know, as we get further in too, it's interesting because um, uh, it 
um, doesn't, it, it seems to shift based on the biggest fears of the person that it's dealing with. So it makes me interested, is this, is Georgie most scared of clowns then? Well, and I think that it appears in a way that is not scary to Georgie. Because he wants to, re- he wants Georgie to reach through there. He wants to give Georgie his boat back. He taunts him and says, "I can give you your boat back. I can give you a balloon." And then he makes it smell good too, so it smells like a carnival. It smells like popcorn and and uh, cotton candy. So I think in this one instance, that Pennywise or it is actually appearing in a. Um, visage that is not scary and then i think that this is actually it so far seems to be my biggest um complaint about the novel if i'm being honest is from what i know it seems that uh and this is all kind of a little skepticism so like it might change throughout this so do give this a little bit of uh, salt but from what I know, it seems that Pennywise or it is supposed to feed off of terror and horror and like fear. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to be as consistent in the novel. So I'm interested if it is that or if it's some other thing because it doesn't, because he doesn't, he does not, he's not scaring Georgie in any way until the very last second here. So he's not getting anything right. out of this. So I just don't understand why there's moments where Pennywise will choose to mess with his victims and scare them even further but then there's moments where he'll choose to comfort them Um, we'll see and and i think that and you know knowing what i know i don't know that fear is necessarily the only thing that pennywise feeds off of i think that there's like a monster zinc style thing i do i think it's a high emotion kind of thing you know um that makes sense to me. And if it's more of him feeding off of, you know, high tension situations, you know, and if you find this little boy and you're a clown in there and then all of a sudden you start, like, doing magic and making him think that the, like, uh, circus is literally down inside of a sewer, I guess there's there's nothing as strong as the imagination of a child and, like, the wonder and magic of that. You know what I mean? Right. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so we're introduced to Pennywise here as well. Um, Pennywise is a... Pennywise the Dancing Clown says, Is Storm blew me away. It blew the whole circus away. Can you smell the circus, Georgie? And um, he's, it's very cryptic and um, foreshadowy, essentially. You know, they all float down here. There's the balloons. We find out about the circus. Um, you know, and knowing what I do know, like, slightly about the story, it's really, really fantastically done how much is so foreshadowed here. Um, yeah. And, you know, you kind of get, like, a real big um, foreshadowing throughout. Um, I knew that there was a giant turtle involved, by the way. Uh, You know, it's just something that you've imbibed through the knowledge of it. Didn't Mm -hmm. expect them to mention it on page, like, 50. Um, So, you know, I I, I like how much more integrated the turtle is into this uh, just immediately. Um, Just, sorry, as a side note. Um, Right. I think it's just that, and then from what we get here about it... We get a lot of our first clues about it. Um, you know, he says that he is an actual clown. He got blown away from the circus. Um, and he says, um, you know, some of the most cryptic stuff that he says is they float. They all mm-hmm. float down here. Um, and he has all these balloons with him. And he says everything down here floats. Um, 
And when you're reading through it, it's important to note that every time he says float, it's in italics. Yeah. So, you know, it's got this uh, this double entendre hidden meaning to it. Pennywise yes. is having fun here. You know, float means something to him that it does not mean to everyone else. Right. So it's like, what does that mean? Um, you know, and just from like the base 280 pages that I've had, um, he's going to take your soul and put it inside a balloon. And then he's going to carry your soul around inside of a balloon. So don't get mm. caught by him. That sounds like a terrible life to be living. Yeah, um, I agree. I do. That's what I think, though. I think that all of those balloons, uh, they're all souls that he's captured. And he's got all of them in his little bag. And he's like cheering with his bag of souls. And he just walks around with all of them, collecting as many as he can. And he'll eventually use all of those souls and all of that power to uh, escape this planet that he's marooned on. <laughs> or they're marooned on, I should say. Um, so, Georgie reaches down to get his boat, and then Kerchunk, um, it reaches up to get Georgie's arm. <laughs> Sorry, that was pretty yeah. funny. I'm very happy with that one. And yeah. he rips his Ooh. arm off. It is yuccaroni. Um, yeah, it is. I see why they changed that for the movie. It would have been pretty gruesome to have a child's arm dripped off on screen. Yeah, absolutely. Hold Gross. on just a second. My headphones just died. No, that's totally it. I get it. So, um, I forgot what I was saying. About how gruesome it was. Oh, yeah, super gruesome. And I understand why they changed it for the movie. Um, you know, it would have just been a little bit too much for a mainstream uh, film. Um, which I think that is a common thread for the translations that we see from book to movie. You know, you can get away with a lot more in a book because people can just skip a paragraph. But you, it's a lot harder to skip 30 seconds of a movie. Well, that and in some cases, I don't think this necessarily is the case. In some cases, it's really hard. I guess it's easier now with CGI, but, you know, especially before with practical effects, it was really hard to portray some of the things that you can write out and imagine in your head. Yeah, Absolutely. And then also, you know, when you're reading through it in your head, you know, it, your imagination can get more vivid than a movie could ever imagine, too. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think as we end this chapter, um, we do get that line. And I just want to read it just because I really liked it. I thought it was very powerful. Um, mm -hmm. All I know is that it was still afloat and still running on the breast of the flood when it passed the incorporated town limits of Dairy, Maine. And there it passes out of this tale forever. Um, it's a really beautiful line. I think it's really great. I think, you know, it really sets the town of uh, a lot of things are going to be coming into this story, affecting the story, and then leaving. You know, there's a lot of that river's cycle journey coming through. Um, and we're going to be expecting to uh, accept that there's going to be some stuff that's just going to leave and we're not going to get any more about it. Well, and I also think it's important to establish that this story is in Derry. Everything that is actually relevant to this story happens within the incorporated town limits of Derry, Maine. Right. You know, and it, it's setting the scene. It's setting the, the idea. It's giving us our main theme. Um, you know, and I think that as we deal with this, we'll, you know, we'll figure it out more. Our main themes are um, death and dealing with death as a young child, for sure. Um, trauma and how trauma affects your growth uh, as a human being. Mm -hmm. And then, um, uh, man, there was another one that I was like, man, this is a good theme. Oh, fear. Fear itself. 
Um, and I think that, you know, what is fear? How do you conquer it? Where do you conquer it? And I think that one of the things that Stephen King does to conquer his own fear is he writes an in 1,200-page book personifying fear itself. You know, if you give fear a face, it's a little bit less scary. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, and I think that, like, it's just reading through it, I feel that strongly there is something Stephen King is working through in his own mental psyche while he is writing this novel. There is some hidden anger and aggression that he might not understand fully. There is something that in every other page there is a little bit more grotesque violence because he's trying to almost one-up himself. He's trying to almost keep it more... He's trying to be... He's trying to keep up with the shock and awe while also telling us a really interesting story. Yeah. And I think that, you know... um, and I'm sure we're going to get into it further and we're going to see more of that. Um, I can only imagine what happens when uh, you get really binged up and you're trying to one-up yourself, the horror king, and uh, you're in your 30s. Um, yeah. So we get into the next chapter in 1984 after the festival. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. This is uh, probably the least consequential chapter, I believe. But I'll also we'll find out if I'm wrong about that. Um, I did not read this one with the same level of an- analysis that I read that first chapter with. I really felt like that first chapter was laying a lot of the groundwork. It was foreshadowing really strongly, and it was telling us what was going to happen. Whereas this is more of, um, you know, if we look at a story circle, um, journeys, hero's journey style, this is the call to action. This is mm-hmm. the, okay, now people are starting to die again, and here's what it looks like. Right. And I think that one of the important, probably the the important things that you should take from this section are the fact that um, Pennywise is in the water. Pennywise eats the guy's arm or part of his arm. He, he specific. I was actually going to talk about that too because I thought it was. It's just we learn a little bit more about Pennywise. He specifically bites into people's armpits to try and. Yeah. Like, he, the guy says who's being interviewed, he thinks he's trying to suck out their soul. Yeah, and the fact that um, the uh, families of Derry haven't changed. Um, Dave Gardner is the local Derry person who found. Um, Georgie and the police officer that was investigating this situation was his son, Harold. And it seems to be like that's an important establishing fact because people don't seem to leave Derry for one reason or another. Um, At least just from this section of the book that we've read so far, it seems that people end up staying in Derry. Terrible things happen and they're just kind of conditioned to accept it and like not worry about it. Right. Um, which is, yeah, terrifying. So we get through those um, murders. Um, I think it's interesting, too, that this book was written in the 70s, right? Or no, 80s? Uh, 80, 81 through 85. So it was published in 87, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. 86. So 86. 86. It came out in 86. Cool. Uh, I think it's very forward progressive that they are um that you know that it is a game a hate crime yes um and i think that that's really fantastic i do think that 
this is definitely a book that was written in the 80s. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I'm not going to get into it too much on this because if we did, like, there's just so much novel, we'd end up dissecting way too much of it. But the language is dated. Um, it is. And I think that that's something that, like, really adds to the longevity of writing is, you know, do how much colloquialisms are you putting into that? How much of, like, a, that real time period are you trying to put into it? And then how can that negatively affect it 35 years in the future? I, I agree with that. And, but the, the counterpoint to that is it's set in 1984. And he wants you to experience it like it's 1984. I get that. I'm talking more about the way he... Uh, about the usage of words and structure and the... Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff in there that is not socially acceptable now, and no, even then, it's not. it was not. It was barely socially acceptable, right? Um, and so, for me, I think that there is definitely still parts of a young man trying to be brash and get attention with shock factor, and part yes. of that is by writing these terrible, like views on people through the lens of terrible people yes um well and what's interesting too is you know we read these older novels and it's not just the terrible people that have outdated language it is some of the newer more modern people or right. not newer more modern, but it is some uh, of the more open characters yeah the main characters the open-minded characters and they say these terrible things and that in my opinion is where we see that like instilled um uh you know, that instilled sense of uh, hatred from an institutionalized standpoint, you know, where Stephen King learned from his entire life that, you know, being gay is wrong, it's not natural, you need to stop it. Um, I don't don't think Stephen King believes that based on the way he writes, but the way he writes... But that's the way it was presented around him. Exactly. And so the way that these characters exist, that is the realm that they live in. Um, And... I, there is something to be said about the realism for it. Like, yes, that is real life. There are people that believe that. But it is something to be said for when you write that, all you're doing is further acknowledging it, validating it, and giving it more power. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's great reading Mr. Mercedes right before this because... I know that that is not, you know, he did, I had some issues with how he wrote in Mr. Mercedes, but he doesn't write this way anymore. Right. No, he doesn't. Um, you know, we don't, you know, there's no moments where Bill's just has these random intrusive thoughts about uh, saying this random homophobic stuff. Um, if I had to be honest, I wrote this note um, down when we first started listening to this. Um, I think that Stephen King is bisexual and he was coming to terms with that through writing this book because he talks about penises a lot in this book. A lot. A lot about penises. <laughs> He's really interested in the male penis during this novel. Um, consistently, like, at least, like, once every other section, I believe, like, we're getting, like, detailed descriptions of what's happening to a penis. Um, so that gives me that idea through that. And I think that him putting that 
feeling out there um, through this novel and kind of like gauging like what would it be like to come out? What would it be like if this is this is like kind of the like reality of like what gay people are facing in the 80s? They're being murdered for holding hands with their lover at the fair. Like, how dare they? Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's interesting, you know? Yes. Um, just 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 wait. <laughs> if we ever get to talk to Steve, I'm going to ask him about like his uh, if he had a sexual awakening himself while he was writing it. Um, but one hour in, guys, and that is the end of chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good thing that what we've got left to talk about are these six phone calls. Yeah, and the six phone calls, we don't need to get into the specifics of it. It's very interesting. Just like that paper boat, I think that Steve is kind of setting you up for these six phone calls to say, I'm going to introduce a lot of people and plot points for each of these individuals, but all you have to remember really is the person mm -hmm. and who they are now. Right. Because that's what's going to be so interesting, you know, is for it's a little ham fisted. But basically what Steve is doing, he is showing us, hey, these are where these characters are going to end up. We're going to have a, a timid, stuttering boy named Bill who can't stand up for himself. And at the end of his life, when he's finally with a partner, he's going to be able to say, no, I don't want this thing. He's going to be able to stand up to those people. He's going to defend himself in ways that he would have never been able to as a child. And what we're doing... You say, at the end of his life, like he's old. He's in his 30s. Oh, yeah, but his he's also going 30s. back to Derry to fight Pennywise, so I'm not right, expecting... but, you know... I, I imagine... I know some of them live. I don't remember exactly who lives and who dies and who tells their story. Um, <laughs> but Mike uh, tells their story. I'm going <laughs> to... Spoiler! Yeah. No, and that's another thing, is this whole book is written by Mike, right? Well, it's it's written from different perspectives. Like the first phone call that we get to Stan isn't even written from Stan's perspective. It's written from his wife's. I think that's what's interesting is like there's a lot of different perspectives here. Uh, Beverly's is written from her lover's perspective as well. But somebody at the be another thing I don't like is the inconsistency of the narration. Um, it jumps around from, like, point of view to point of view, but it's not framed mm -hmm. in a way where, like, this is something that, like, would make sense. Um, you're well, right. I've I do heard, believe... I've heard that complaint from a lot of people, is that this one is hard to follow because you don't always know whose perspective you're looking at it from. Well, um, and then sometimes it switches halfway through a sentence. Like, when we get yeah. into Beverly's section, there's a moment where, like, it switches we, perspective halfway we go through. From, the... We go from Tom's to hers and back. And it's really cool because it is, it is a an incredible display of the power dynamic in that room at the time however right. it's super confusing if you're not like paying a lot of attention right if you're not fully aware and fully engrossed in what's going on it is hard to follow so 100 and so yeah. i do think that you know those are those are my two big inconsistencies right now that i see that are uh just going to hit the writing at the end of this process you know yeah. uh, and i think that the with pennywise it could be cleared up quite a bit it you know like mm -hmm. It seems to not really have a consistent reason for these murders, um, unless it just enjoys murder and it's having a good time with it. And that's really what right. it's about is, you know, how can it have fun while it's doing this? Um, and then the narration is it doesn't seem to be written from one person's point of view in a consistent way to add in all these other stories. Um, and, you know... If uh, it, it does seem like there's just an omnipresent storyteller telling us this story. Uh, mm -hmm. And if that's the case, like, I just wish that it would be more. It should have been introduced, I believe, sooner. So that way we know 
what yeah. the frame story is or like what that idea is. I don't know. Or it could be introduced later, I guess, too. It doesn't have to be introduced at this moment. Um, I guess, and that's why, like, you, I'm not going to write the writing until I finish the novel, you know, is, like, it could all right, be setting exactly. up some overarching thing. Um, but that's those are the two things right now we're on, I'm on the lookout for as we continue. Um, so then we are going to get into Chapter 3. Uh, and like Kim said, th- this is a lot quicker. Um, this will be pretty quick. Stanley Uris, uh, pr- especially quick, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um Stanley is a very... He's a successful accountant. He is anxious. He is paranoid. He has... um, Can't get his wife pregnant, and they don't understand why. And they don't understand why, yeah. Okay, and that's... And this is a theming thing here, I'll just tell you, because we talk about this anyway. Um, But I think that... It's important what he's trying to get across here is that it's important to know that this kid got out. He got out and he's successful. So this is what you're saying is like this is his arc now. Is mm-hmm. He's now someone out there who is able to try and have children and live his life and be established. Right. right. And that is a, something that a lot of people strive for. Especially, you know, it's interesting that that is all his character is striving for then when that is so relatable in 2021 uh you know uh i would love to try and own a house at some point in my life but it's not it's looking less and less likely all of every year um and i think it's just that dream is very relatable on a primal level for a lot of people i think stanley in himself is presented as the real person this is mm-hmm. what would actually happen if you were in this situation. This is what 80% of us would do uh, if we had to fight an extra planar beast from our childhood again. Yeah, and I think that I think the most important, and this is maybe this is a lot of foreshadowing, the one of the most important lines in this chapter within a chapter is... The turtle couldn't help us. Well, there's two. The That's turtle the first moment us. that they mention the turtle. Like, or no, I guess I don't think it is, but it's the first moment where we hear just like this older adult character say it too. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually kind of it. It almost may feel like a throwaway line because they're talking about his wife's watching Family Feud, and he answers. He said, "Everything's a lot tougher when it's for real. That's when you choke." when it's for real yeah it's easy to make these promises when you're 11 and mm-hmm. then you know you're 39 now and you have to go back to the town and do this thing and you're like oh my god this is going to be uh not good mm-hmm. um and so stan gets this phone call he ends up um, talking with his wife for a little bit he goes into the shower and um i'm trying to find the exact line but um, he ends up killing himself. Yeah. And well, and and it talks about it from her point of view that it was she didn't even notice at first that he was doing something that was out of character, and when she did, she had this fear, and and is in the pit of her stomach. She knew something was really wrong, and then yeah. she found him. She breaks into the bathroom, and. Uh, on the wall, he's written it in his own blood. And that is uh, just, you know, that is where the arc of Stanley Uris ends. Mm-hmm. 
We're then introduced to Richard Towser. Uh, Richie is a man who's got, um, you know, he's charming and he's sincere and it seems like he's got a lot of friends. And I think that that's kind of like the arc that we'll see for him, you know, is uh, how he connects with people. Um, other than that, Richie was much more... Uh, you know, I think that when you have six characters like this, you're not going to be able to uh, do a ton of interesting stuff all right at the beginning, or else it's going right. to seem kind of ham-fisted and lame. And I think that right. Richie's kind of the one that gets the short end right now. He doesn't have a very interesting beginning of the story. Um, not because he's not interesting or anything, it's just because it is... Well, because he doesn't have the intimate connection to anybody that Stan and Bev right. and Eddie and bill have they don't have you know they don't have a partner he doesn't have a partner he's got friends he's got co-workers but he doesn't have those intimate relationships yeah because this kid was and then like you get like it's revealed in the first chapter but this kid is like painfully in love with bill um mm-hmm. i see like why this has happened where he's at um, and he's a very popular uh, radio DJ now, making uh, funny voices and entertaining people and making them laugh. And, uh, you know, he's getting the all of the attention now that he wanted. Um, undivided attention in some cases. And I think that that's like a lot of the arc that we'll see for him. Right. That's, that's his success point. You know, he wanted to... Uh, that's what he wanted. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to make voices. He wanted to make people laugh. He want, So he... He found his success that he wanted, and here we go. And I think it's fun, too, because you do get these moments um, in each one. Uh, Stanley has one where he talks about um, – uh, he actually doesn't talk about anything in particular. He's actually just got this general sense of fear. And then we get into this next bit with Richie, and Richie has a small flashback where he imagines Bill – uh, slamming a house on Niebold Street. And then he's like, does he remember that? No, he doesn't remember that. So we're slowly getting these uh, additions. And mm-hmm. then we get into the sewers, into the pound and stink in sewers. Um, and then we get shoved right over to Ben's, uh, Ben's chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, each chapter is building on this mythos of this creature right now. Right. Ben is my favorite character so far. Like him a lot. Um, he is now a up-and-coming architect. He is super fit and handsome. He's uh, very kind, charming. He's rich. Uh, and he is the type of person who has searched desperately for a place to feel like he belongs. He finds a tiny little bar in Nebraska where everybody's super nice to him, and he feels like he belongs there, and it's his home. And he goes there every week for the rest of his life, nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and like that's what it is for him. He he wanted to, he wanted to find a place where he felt loved and at home and comfortable and safe. And he finally finds that in this bar. And so he goes out of his way. If he is in London, he comes back to that bar. If he is, you know, he he goes there every single weekend without every weekend. Fail. Yep. And he has a routine. And he, you know, it's it's his home away from home. You know, it's the it's the bar where it's the bar where he's family. It's Cheers. It's Cheers. And uh, one day he gets a phone call from Mike. Comes into the bar, talks to the bartender, and he's uh, very sad. Ends up giving the bartender these 
uh, three silver dollars that he has from uh, the 1920s. And they're made pure silver. And he's like, you know, I want you to have these. I'm going off to uh, do something crazy. I'm probably not going to be coming back. And uh, he ends up taking six shots of whiskey all at the same time. And I was like, wow, good for him. Um, And then we, uh, and that's essentially Ben's chapter. Um, Yeah, because, you know, Ben doesn't have a a direct family. He doesn't have that intimate connection. So, you know, or as intimate of a connection. So he goes and says, 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 says goodbye to, you know, his his adopted family and kind of gives them a little bit of the you know i was fat and poor when i was a kid um you know and i think it's interesting too because you know we see some of the uh the parental trauma that is forced onto these children and how it manifests in their adulthood Mm -hmm. ben goes to a bar to drink and use food and drink as comfort because when he is younger Whenever his mother doesn't know how to deal with the situation, she just shoves food at him and says, eat. You can't, you can't be emotional and I don't have to deal with your problems if you're just eating. Right. Um, and so that's how Ben learns to cope with his feelings is to eat food. Um, and his mother just in, – she enables and not only, like, allows the behavior but uh, makes it worse consistently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see how that correlates here. When we get into Eddie's next chapter here, it is disgustingly obvious how much his mother made him a hypochondriac. Yes. You know, you know, we have this, uh, it's just the first two pages are just him listing off all of the different medicines he takes. And right. what all of the everything things he that's, does. Yeah, everything that's in the medicine cabinet and everything that he piles from the medicine cabinet into his bag to take with him. It's, yep. Yeah, it's awful. Um. I do not like Eddie at all so far, so I uh, hope something happens. But um, he starts it off. Will. It will. It'll change, Eddie. <laughs> he's. I hope he's got a good character arc because he is he so far the worst character. Um, he just starts off. He's uh, lying and manipulative to his wife. He's mean to her. He does not actually want to be married to her. But he and he even acknowledges himself the Freud complex he's found himself trapped in, where he just wanted mm-hmm. to remarry his mother. Um, and he's just not nice. And he's just so broken and needs to go to therapy. Yeah, he uh, does. <laughs> and he gets all of his stuff together. Uh, and, you know, we get these in between. We get these little um, Eddie has these dissociative moments where he just remembers his mother yelling at him or yelling about him mm-hmm. and all of these things and how bad it affected him. And so, you know, the first thing that one of the very first memories that we get here, and it's just got to set the tone for everything as we read through it. And we got to remember this. A doctor says when Eddie is young, there is nothing physically wrong with him. Confirmed tests, everything. There is nothing wrong with this kid. However, his mother is convinced that she, he has asthma. He has all this list of ailments. Mm -hmm. um, And that that he's fragile. Yeah. And that he can't do all these things. So, Eddie grows up believing that he's, you know, bubble boy, and he can't do all of these things. Right. Um, it manifests in that way where uh, now he has to take care of himself in that way. He marries uh, Myra, who he, he admits to himself and marries, reminds him of his mother, and gets the call from Mike, and he uh, 
just kind of like ends up sliding out and running away. I don't even, uh, he tries not to tell his wife, but she catches him. Well, yeah, because he, he's there, she's there, and he, instead of telling her where he's going or what he's doing, he, you know, gives her instructions of how to keep the business going while he's gone and and then just, you know, walks out into the night. But he, he compares it to leaving home again. He said that, you know, he kept leaving home and going back to his mom, and so it was like trying to leave his mom again. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, and so he you know, he's to... and, and I think what's important is that he's fully aware that this is a dysfunctional relationship. He's fully aware that he is not mentally healthy and probably is more physically healthy than he thinks. Yeah. Um, but it, it's his security blanket at this point in life. You know, it, right. it's the little shield and uh, body armor he's created around himself to protect himself from the uh, fears of the real world. Right. Um, then we are introduced into Bev. Um, Bev is a badass. I like her so much. She's cool. Um, she, we, you know, nothing is talked about yet, but she is a woman who finds herself in a very abusive relationship. Um, the level of abuse that Stephen King writes about is incredibly specific. Uh, and it's just pretty awful. Um, just the, like... The level of specificity that Steve brings to it is uh, very haunting, um, and it's awful. Beverly ends up um, getting this call from Mike, and as she's on the phone, she starts to light a cigarette, and her husband does not like when she smokes, um, so he attempts to start to beat her, and Beverly's been living with this for ten, or no, eight years now or something, yeah. and she's just at the point now where she's... She had been living her whole life assuming that this is what she deserved and this is how she should be accepting love and this is what she needed. And then she gets this phone call and the whole part of her when she was 11 where she beat an interdimension, interplanar like being pops into her and she's enraged and infuriated and she's just, she's, I think... When I'm it flips. It, it flips her. I'm done with this, and yes. I am. I am. I deserve better. I'm more than this. Yeah. And I am not going to tolerate this anymore. Yeah, and I think that that it just really flipped a switch in Bev, and she, uh, she remembered all of that at the same time. You know, and I think it's interesting too. We haven't talked about it much, but everybody has memories or things or scars or personality traits that have been locked away after they beat it the first time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Bev uh, seems to regress a little bit after they beat uh, everything. But also, you know, they're only 11 when this story takes place the first time. You know, right. trauma gets worse when you get to be 13, 14 if you have an abuser. So, of course, like, Beverly's trauma probably gets significantly worse as the story continues. Um, she ends up uh, just beating the heck out of this dude and uh, escaping the house and um, continues on her way to Derry. Um, she is now someone that stands up for herself in the face of that abuse, um, but she's also someone that will sit complacent and take that abuse when she's the only one at risk. When there's other yes. people at risk, the abuse isn't acceptable anymore, and she has to go. She has to go help those people. But when it's just her as the target of all of this abuse. It's just her that's being hurt and punished. She is okay with that. 
Well, and honestly, I, I'm going to say that that is actually fairly typical in an abused situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's when when it's just the abusee, they tolerate a lot more than if there's, you know, if the abuser is injure, hurting, you know, their child or some somebody else, the abusee tends to find some kind of an inner strength to be able to stand up and make an escape. If Beverly, from the ages of two or three to the ages of 18, had a parent who constantly would beat her and say, Mm -hmm. I'm beating you for your own good, I'm beating you because I love you, you did Mm -hmm. bad, and this is your fault that you're being beat, of course that's what she's going to look for in a partner. That's what she thinks love is. Because that's what she thinks love is, yeah. So she looks for that going forward. She finds it because there are bad people out there that also grew up in that same environment on the other side of the spectrum, thinking the only way to show love is to beat people and to correct their behavior, in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where she finds herself in. Um, and this this one in particular is the one that... Uh, this is the one that uh, shows that trauma from childhood and how far it can affect you as an adult. Yeah. Um, next, we get into the final one, Bill Denborough. Bill Denborough, um, he's going to be our... He's the the the, uh, the leader of our little uh, group, in my opinion. But I guess like as we get further into it, I'm sure it's not just going to be like that. Bill's, or Ben also seems to be quite a bit of the leader. Um I think Bill is just kind of the social glue that brings them all together. He's the mediator. Well, he's he's the one who, so far, it has, Pennywise has directly affected because his brother is the first victim. Right. Um, I think, too, that uh, he is... Also, the only one that has, uh, oh my God. he's also the only one that, um, uh, yeah, no, you're right. He is the only one that has, like, I guess, no, well, the other two have had uh, some, like, encounters with Pennywise, well, but they well, haven't had a event directly affect the future of their life like this. Right, right. All of them are affected by Pennywise, but Bill is the one that is most directly affected. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get into Bill's chapter. So far. Yeah, so far. I'm, I'm sure that that's going to change. But, like, that I think is why Bill seems to be the main character. He seems mm-hmm. to be the one with the most revenge and vengeance uh, that the most comeuppance deserved. Right. Um, so we get into Bill's chapter. We find out he is married to a woman named Audra. Um, and she was a woman that played the main character of one of... Uh, the woman in his book that got made into a movie. He has become a famous author. He's got lots of novels out, New York Times bestsellers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Bill is Stephen King. Surprise. Yeah, right? (laughs) Like, oh, no, yeah, you wrote a 1,200-page book and you threw yourself in there. Of course you did. I would, too. Why wouldn't you? (laughs) Um, But uh, he... uh, So does that make Bill Larry also? Yeah, in some ways, for sure. Like, absolutely. Um, (laughs) I do think, too, uh, Bill... I definitely can see Bill and Larry definitely, like, having, Mm -hmm. like, 
super similar dispositions and how they would react to things. Um, we find out about Bill's stutter. We find out that it's starting to come back. We find out that there was a scar on his palm that's disappeared now. Um, and he tries to remember things, and he pretty much has the... He knows that if he tried hard enough, he could remember everything. But it's at the point where what good is that? Does he really need to remember everything to go forward and do what he needs to do? Um, in some ways, it feels like they are... It is a gift to not remember those things. Yeah. It is almost like there was a, uh, you know, I don't know, like a magic flying turtle or something that uh, was like, good job, kids. You know, it's going to come back in 28 years, but for the next 28 years, I'm going to give you this gift of not remembering. So you can right. at least have some semblance of a normal life before you're called on again. Well, and, you know, I'm going to rewind all the way back to Stan. You know, everybody else gets a little memory. And it just may, and, and we don't know from Stan's point of view because we don't get Stan's story from his point of view. We get it from his wife's, from Patty's. Um, what did Stan remember? Did it all come back in one fell swoop for Stan? For Stan? Is that why he killed himself? Did he just, like, as soon as he was on the phone, did it just... Did it just, like, yeah. you know, like, this crate opened up and everything was in it? I can imagine, you know, like, um, the nature of repressed memories, um, and just in my own life, going through therapy and everything, is, you know, there's stuff that you lock down in there, and then you remember it, and you're like, oh, man. And then that just, it's like a Russian nesting doll. You remember one mm -hmm. thing, and then another thing, and another thing, and another thing. So with all of these traumas, um, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the way that it was able to... Uh, that it affected it. And, you know, right. we also have... And I think that from that perspective, I think Stan's was more like a jack-in-the-box. Okay. And it just all popped up on it. Just all watch. popped up at once. I would not be surprised, too, then, if um, Pennywise has some control in that. We get to see it firsthand. We get to see it from that, that omniscient perspective. They get to see it in their parents' fear and mm -hmm. in you know, the curfew that they have to live under and, you know, people acting strange in town and, and things being outside of what has been normal in their lives so far. And, yeah, you know, and, and we're, I mean, we're still kind of in the midst of a global pandemic. And, you know, when things were like super serious lockdown, that was really hard for a lot of people because everything was so out of, out of the ordinary and, you know, even for even for young kids, it was out of ordinary. And Absolutely. so it was hard. And, and I think that that's kind of where they're at when they're 11, you know, that they've got very specific things that are not typical in their lives. And so that's the perspective that they get those things from. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it further shows the effect of the previous generation on the next generation and the effects mm -hmm. of a parent's ideas and ideals on a child. If you're going to sit there like Ben's mother does every night and say, I'm worried about you getting kidnapped. Of course, you're going to be scared of getting kidnapped. You, you were never as a child thinking, man, somebody's going to snatch me until somebody told you you had a chance of being snatched. Right. Um, right. So, you know, if you're repeated with that fear and assaulted with it over and over again, it's going to happen. When we get further in over the next couple of uh, murders and stuff, there's always a moment, and it's very similar to The Stand, where the characters will be thinking or doing something else, and then just all of a sudden they'll get interrupted with a thought and a feeling of a really 
horrible sense of macabre, uh, Mm -hmm. like dread. Um, And it happens consistently. I would posit that Pennywise is able to control and try and like force some of that feeling, that memories, uh, and that's what some of his power is. And that's got to be what Turtle Boy is fighting as well. So, you know, with the, he has that shield up. Pennywise is trying to force all of those memories to come back. Stanley's the first one he calls. Stanley, um, it's ready for him because he mm-hmm. hasn't been sleeping. So he, he's ready. He gets Stanley. Uh, Stanley, he immediately unlocks all those memories for Stan. And Stan, you know, it's a jack-in-box. I think that's such a good analogy for it. And he uh, can't handle it. Mm-hmm. We get into the next ones, and they none of them remember anything in a jack-in-a-box like that. We just see it being remembered piece by piece, which right. makes me think that at that point, the turtle had been like, oh, no, I need to protect the, the kids again. And he starts putting up those shields and protecting them from the intrusive thoughts of Pennywise. You know, I think that Pennywise's telepathic power seems to be quite strong if he can manifest um, smells, sights, and sounds in someone's mind. Yeah. Because he's obviously not creating those things in reality. I don't think that he's changing reality. I think he changes your perception of reality. I agree with that. I agree um, with that. And I think that, um, you know, that kids are more susceptible to the power of suggestion than adults. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, it's, it's, that's why it's kids. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is the end of chapter two. Um, so we've met our six main characters. There is one more character named Mike Hanlon. Um, so for Steve to introduce us to him, we get into what's called Derry the First Interlude. This is another instance of, oh, for the stand, there is, and as you read through it, there is a sense that someone in Colorado put together that story, like collected all of these things for like posterity, for posterity. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Callback. Um, So (laughs) that way they'd be able to uh, have that history. Here, you get that same sense, but then halfway through it, you get this part where it's like, we found a book by Mike Hanlon that's called Dairy, A History. So in this same sense, it invalidates that theory because there's no way that we are reading the book that Mike Hanlon wrote when part of the source for this book is the book Mike Hanlon wrote. Does that make sense? Well, and I think that the interludes are a separate aspect of the story. I mean that the overall story is everything without the interludes. The interludes are the part of, because Mike stayed. Mike is the only one that stayed in Derry. And so those are Mike's hmm, um, legacy. You know, he's the historian. He's the, he's really the town historian. He's the, the head librarian. And this, I think the interludes are okay. no, yeah, what he's leaving behind. Does that absolutely. make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It makes sense. Up until this point, though, you could imagine that these first other pages, they're written by the character Mike. Mm-hmm. When you get to this point, though, it confirms that it is not written by the character Mike in that first paragraph. 
right. because it talks about in a third person point of view I the writer of it Stephen King found this book by Mike Hanlon and I used it right. as a primary source for my book right because of the way he sets that up it makes it impossible for Mike Hanlon to be the person that wrote this book this entire history of the chapter of fighting it right so just that inconsistency there of who wrote this book then who is doing all of this historical research on dairy writing this novel and then putting it out for the like in the hypothetical world of this situation well and and yes that is a thing but i think that mike is tell mike is telling dairy's story and somebody else is telling mike and everybody else's story right and i think that that's the the issue for me is who who is it who like who because yeah. up to this point you really like did a bait and switch on us and it made it feel like it was mike right and then now it's like okay it obviously isn't mike because somebody well, found mike's journal yeah maybe honestly maybe turtle. that would be dope um so i think that we'll see as we get further in um but that's probably my biggest that and how its murders are handled are probably my biggest uh inconsistencies but we get into this um he has this one thought um it's pretty uh, intrusive and he says um knowing that it's time might be coming around um and he has this part to play as the watchman and he knows uh he says uh or maybe it was the voice of the turtle who tells him to be the watchman but he knows that it is his job to stay in dairy and make and watch for the signs of what happens mm-hmm. um he gives us a very thorough history on the town of Derry. Um, we find out that there have been murders all the way back since the town uh, existed. The first big set of murders was actually a Roanoke-level disappearance where uh, one day it just seemed like the entire town up and vanished. Mm-hmm. Um, and then since then, there's just been incredibly horrible accidents and uh, explosions, fires, murders, kidnappings. Um, the murder rate in Derry is six times the murder rate of any si- town that size. Um, and he's, Mike is just convinced that it's haunted. Yeah. And, you know, he gets one. And that's his, that's his line. You know, can an entire town be haunted? Yeah. And that's the introduction of it. And he gets this one definition of the word haunt to mean a feeding place for animals. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps running that through his head, a feeding place. That's the one that haunts him. Um, and so now we are introduced to all seven of our characters. And and, uh, and the town of Derry. And the town of Derry. So, you know, between that and all eight characters, nine characters, because we also know quite a bit about it now. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've got quite a bit of the idea of fear that he presents into the world. And the level yeah. of power he has. Yeah. So we come into part two. Um, part two is framed really well and and this is what i mean like you know it's very frustrating when we have the inconsistencies in narration like that but then we have these incredible frames that he does where he writes about ben being whiskey drunk on an airplane falling asleep and as he falls asleep he remembers the first time that he met his friends Mm -hmm. and it ties in real well together the chapters even connect school school is school is out and it goes into the next chapter and it's written beautifully it's really I well done i love that i think yeah. that 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 little uh, 
Yeah, well, it's and awesome. It, it's really funny because we we literally just talked about that this morning. Mm-hmm. How I slept through my alarm and how in our heads sometimes the alarm becomes part of our dream. Right. And in this case, the stewardess bells where they're ringing for the stewardess become part of his dream being the school bell. Yep. And it slowly lulls them into a sense of sleep and we end up in the dream corner. <laughs> This one's not as much of a dream because it's pretty much just a flashback. But there is a pretty good dream. There's one really good dream that uh, is important for us that we'll break into here in a little bit. Um, But Ben falls asleep, and we get the last day of summer. We find out that Ben is uh, a loner. He doesn't realize it, but he is a lonely little boy. He wants some friends. He wants to hang out with people. Um... But he doesn't know how to, he doesn't know that about himself, let alone does he know how to go about doing that. He's well, been, and I love the analogy that he uses there about, you know, if somebody's born blind, they don't, they have a, a they don't know they're an blind academic, until. yeah, they have an academic concept of them being blind, but they don't truly understand what being blind is. And he compares that to Ben's loneliness. Ben's never had friends, so he doesn't really understand that he's lonely. Yeah. We're introduced to Henry Bowers. Henry has been talked about a couple of times throughout the book, but this is his first real introduction. He is their childhood bully, and he made their life absolutely miserable, especially during this summer. Um, and part of the reason, the inception of all of this, is during their final exam, um, Henry whispers over to Ben, and he says, hey, let me copy, and Ben says no, and he says, I'm going to kill you for it. You know, classic 1950s bullying. And, and 1980s and 2020s uh, and yeah right you know i don't think bullies have ever changed no yeah <laughs> so ben gets his report card that day and he starts to run out the school and uh we run he runs into bev almost literally they were bev runs actually bev runs into him because he stopped on the steps oh yeah um and you know it, it, it is very cute it's very nice i love reading there's one line in particular, and uh, it was, um, um, but essentially he says uh, Ben's heart felt both longing uh, and complete hurt and also love at the fullest at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, man, that is what it's like to see someone like just fully unrequited love. Um, especially, I don't think that Stephen King was a particularly chubby child. But as someone who was a very chubby child, the man really got it. Um, there's some parts here where he's talking about just Ben's, uh, the way that he thinks about himself mm-hmm. and how he shovels candy into his face. And he's like, you know, no, you know, your crush isn't going to like you if you keep eating like this, but he keeps doing it for, to comfort himself anyways. And it's just it, some very relatable content. It really hits home. Uh, it's very well written. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the only child, like, especially like, child that used to use candy to comfort himself uh that has grown out of that and has read this book and really related to that um and i'm sure that's why ben is my favorite character um like already because i just have that personal connection to him um he's hanging out he goes to the library um while he's in the library um we get an interesting uh moment where he has a uh a reminiscent of uh a reminiscent that's not a word he has a, a flashback <laughs> he remembers these memories of what happened in last january there is an 
citywide curfew where everybody has to be in by 7 p.m. right now. And in last January, he was helping count books. And as he's heading home, he stops by the canal. And in the canal, Pennywise pops out and uh, tries to get him to come to him. But the school bell rings at the right moment, and he's able to break out of the, the um, well, spell and well, run it's, away. Well, it's the, it's the town clock. Town clock, he's, thank you. Yeah, it's the town clock. But yeah, it, it breaks him out of that stupor so that he can go home. And he... Uh, he doesn't say anything about that to anyone because he doesn't want anyone to think that he's crazy. Mm-hmm. He also, his mother has been a little hyperprotective of him lately. So he's worried that if he says something, he won't be able to go outside anymore. Right. Which seems right. likely from the way that his mother. But also, you know, if you got four murders happening in three months, they're all children. Maybe you yeah. don't let your children run around unsupervised at that point. Yeah, I mean... You know, that's it, just me as, like, a, a person, though. That's my opinion. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like that it's... I know the definitely 50s are something, but definitely it, a it, different time of raising a child, though, too. It's definitely a different time. And, you know, it. his mom's like, you know, just make sure you stay with your friends, which is scary because, you know, she doesn't even realize that he doesn't have any friends. She has no idea about her child. Right. And, you know, she, she just, gives him a watch and says, be home by dinner time. And if you're not, I'll call the police and they'll be looking for you. Um, and that's literally like pretty much it. Um, yeah. And I have a feeling that that's all we're going to hear from Ben's mom. Um, just because she doesn't seem too uh, in touch or uh, connected to his life in any way. I mean, yeah, that's, that's yeah. a good theory. Well, um, and I love the little haiku that Ben writes to Beverly. Mm-hmm. In this um, section. And it's real cute. You know, he's sitting there just reading a book, and he sees that they have these um, postcards for sale, and he has a dime. So he buys a postcard, he writes a haiku, and he sends it to Beverly. Um, anonymously. Anonymously. And it's really cute. Um, and he has this little daydream where he, he walks out of the library, and he's sitting there having a daydream about how he's going to give it to her, and she's going to be like, oh, my God, Ben, did you write this? I have to kiss you now because you wrote this. And he's going to be like, well, I guess if you have to kiss me, I do want that. Uh, and then as he's sitting there having his little daydream, um, Henry and his little buddies come up and they, uh, grab him and, uh, you know, it really, really goes downhill from here. (laughs) Literally, literally goes downhill from here. So they grab Ben, they spin him around, he drops his books and they start just harassing him. Um, I think it's interesting. Henry Bowers calls him tits. What mm-hmm. this does is because he calls him tits, Henry Bowers is about to get uh, hit in the face and he's going to end up uh, like biting his tongue or something. And he's going to not pronounce words correctly. And he's going to end up saying it's over and over mm-hmm. again. And it's just such a fun little phonetic detail. So there's moments where he's like, it's going to kill you. Uh, tits, I'm going to kill you. But it comes out as it's going to kill you. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, you get these little moments where, hmm, um, and then also, if we're going to, I want just to imagine, I do believe, too, and it's foreshadowed a little bit here, that, uh, and I do know, I think I know this from the movie, so I'm not going to pretend that this is a wholly original thing. I do believe that Henry and his crew are being influenced by Pennywise. They're being, like, hypnotized, controlled in some way. Because right as Ben is walking around, he's having this incredible fantasy of Beverly, 
and then he looks to the left and all of a sudden it breaks and he imagines a hand and a clown and all of and a, and a funny clown wearing a baggy suit and so there's that moment where telepathically pennywise enters the area it's right, there like, now yeah it, it's like henry and his gang are a physical manifestation of the evil yep and it is much more obvious to pennywise if he does want to deal with that fear he will get more out of ben by dealing with his bullies than by dealing with him himself because he's already failed to get Ben on his own. Right. So um, they grab him, they pull up his shirt, and they Henry pulls out his knife, um, and he uh, goes to uh, carve his name into his belly, which, you know, yeah. Pennywise is controlling your thoughts. You know, you, you get away with a little bit of no foresight, but um, my dude, Henry... If you carve your name into this kid's belly, it's going to be very obvious it was you. Well, but Ben is terrified of him. And we've already established that Henry is not smart. No, he, absolutely. He was He's already held back. Kid. He was already held back once. And the reason he's so angry real, is because he failed again. <laughs> being held back in an American school system does not always mean you're not smart. I got well, held back when I was in first grade because I wasn't social enough. Well, and, and but now this look is at the me. 50s. But this is the yeah, 50s. True. I mean... Um, you get held back for not having grades in the 50s. That's for sure. Right. Um, so he, um, they pull the knife out, and they go to carve into his belly. He gets the H into his belly, and Ben has the horrifying realization that E comes after H, and he does not want to be there when Henry figures out how to spell an E. And um, <laughs> right. he kicks himself backwards, and the way that... the the location that they're out now is it's kind of uh, it is an roadway that goes over a hill almost and next yeah. to that hill on the left side is a big valley a big like um, just a big open uh, forest called the Barrens and so he ends up pushing himself backwards over the hill falling straight backwards and down into the Barrens um, tumbling back and he, he uh, hits himself he catches himself on the leg he ends up getting a sprained leg. He starts to get up, and he finds out Henry is coming after him. So Henry starts to come after him. As Henry is coming after him, he stands up. He trips over a branch. He kicks Henry's legs out from underneath of him. Henry goes flying forward and smashes his head face down into the ground. As he's kind of dazed and stunned, Ben gets up, and he continues on. Henry gets up and continues behind him. He recognizes he has just a second, so Ben runs up and kicks him in the balls. Mm-hmm. And it's more penis talk from there. Get a little, just <laughs> right. a, a little bit more there. Um, and so Ben kicks him in the balls and they uh, runs away. Um, and, and hides. He runs off and hides. And he runs off and hides. And uh, he ends up uh, finding a place to... Uh, he ends up taking a nap, pretty yeah. much. Um, he wakes up a couple hours later. Um, he wakes up a couple of hours later and, and not... He doesn't wake up. He wakes he goes up and sometime hides, later. And he wakes up sometime later. It's probably only like really 15, 20 minutes later because he hears Henry Bowers um, talking to some kids nearby. And mm -hmm. they're saying that they're going to try and build a dam. And uh, they're just like, no, like I haven't seen uh, a kid run by. And he uh, ends up, uh, um, they end up destroying the, the dam that these kids are working on. And Bill he and right. ben hears all this. And so Henry and them goes off, and Ben's like, I'm going to wait here for a few more minutes to make sure that they go. 
and then he falls asleep, and now we get into our first official dream corner of season two. Mm-hmm. That's a that's Doctor Who. That's what that is. I couldn't <laughs> remember for a second at all. But we get into this dream corner, um, and uh, let's see. Ben counted, or no, he dreamed of the thing that happened in January. Um, oh, I guess that that is just where it comes into. So this is where he comes into talks about that. There's, I thought that there was another dream that he had. I guess it must be later on. Never mind. Forget all of that. Um, this is <laughs> no. where he actually has the January, um, where he has everything that he remembers everything. He wakes up, um, and now he um, comes out. He's it's been he it's been an hour or two. He can tell by the sun. Right. He uh, comes out. He goes to those kids in the dam, and he looks over, and one of the kids is just laying down on the ground. And Bill Denborough looks up and he says, I'm pretty sure he's dying. And um, that's the end of that flashback for Ben. Uh, it's really great. I really liked it a lot. Um, I think the the way that these three become friends is so wholesome and adorable and I love it so much. It, it really is. It and so good. Just the way that... We'll talk about it here in a second, but Bill invites him to come and hang out and he's just like, it's so casual and so nice and he just invites me. Right, like me walking up on these guys that he knows based on what he sees when he walks up that they got part of Henry's wrath on his behalf because you know, he they didn't they legitimately didn't see that see him and because of that and Henry being so angry, Henry took it out on these guys. And so he's, there's also that sense of, you know, a little bit of guilt that they took, that they got part of the, what was intended for him. Yeah, absolutely. And that they don't hold that against him because, they, you know, it, it's, it's all there. We get into chapter five and now we're going to shift to Bill's point of view. We get another really incredible moment of this framing technique where we get an older version of Bill who is traveling back to Derry. And as he travels back. He's going to have this uh, extended memory. The cool part about it is it's going to, the memory is going to pick up right after Ben's memory ends. Mm -hmm. This is the first section, too, where we get a little bit of an insight into Bill has been writing these novels, and all of the inspiration from his novels does come from his childhood. And I think that that is also one of the main reasons why he remembers more than anyone else is because he's actively always trying to remember it and well, creating see, these... and, and and no, I, I think it's the exact opposite. He's he doesn't remember it, or he doesn't consciously, consciously. remember it. Yeah, yeah. I think um, his memories come back faster because they aren't as buried as everybody else's. Because he's already accessed them subconsciously, he just didn't realize it. Yep. And so he is on this plane ride, and he tells us this long story, uh, essentially, of the, um, of the time he got his bike. Um, mm-hmm. And his bike's name is Silver. And essentially, um, he saved up for a real long time, saw it in the window, and bought it. And it was his favorite thing in the entire world, and it made him feel safe. Invincible. Yeah. And that's really what it is about, is, you know... Bill is, um, he's just got, he's got a very strong anxiety disorder. And after his brother is killed in the middle of the day playing out in the storm, when Mm -hmm. he himself should, like, 
in his head, he was like, if it was any other day, I would have been out there playing with him and we would have yeah. both been killed. Or it would, or he wouldn't have been killed because I'd have been there. And I would have protected him. He right. is, doesn't feel safe anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we'll see is Bill's level of safety is how far it's going to affect his stutter. Right. When he's with Audra and he doesn't remember anything, he's just writing books, he doesn't have a stutter. He's going slow and he's confident because, you know, he feels safe and he's forgotten all the reasons he shouldn't. And now he's at a point where he's got this phone call and he's starting to remember things. So that stutter's starting to come back a little bit. After mm-hmm. Georgie is killed, it is the most vulnerable and the least safe he has to feel. Except when he's on his bike. When he's on right. Silver, he is going 30 miles an hour through traffic, weaving in and out of everything. Um, you know, it, it starts to, we get like a whole like seven or eight pages of uh, just... Uh, of the ride to the drugstore? Of the <laughs> ride to the drugstore, yeah. It, it makes your hands all sweaty and you, oh, it's... He's, I'm about I to love hit this the visuals. Yeah, it's really great. He gets to the drugstore. He gets him um, uh, his. Uh, he gets to the drugstore. He asks for the aspirator, and uh, you know, just for fun, we get a fun little moment where the uh, pharmacy tech is like, "Yeah, here you go. Here's the the kid's medicine." And then he's like, "It's just tap water, you dummy." So, even the pharmacy in this town isn't giving Eddie real medicine. He's just mm-hmm. giving him water in an aspirator. Right. So because, Bill, because Eddie's mom is crazy. Yeah, 100%. Um, and so Bill try, takes it back to them, gets Eddie the aspirator, and as soon as Eddie takes it, within seconds he's feeling better. And it just kind of confirms that, you know, that, uh, that conditioned mindset about himself. That, you know, uh, his mother has said, you are this way. So Mm -hmm. this is how you are. And there's nothing about it that you can change. So just get used to being this way. Right. Um, So they end up giving, um, they give him that, and we get this incredible bonding moment. um, And we don't have to go too deep into it. It's just very cute. um, Where they're like, we're going to build, he's like, well, yeah, we've been trying to build a dam. Bill says that we've been trying to build a dam. And he's just like, well, it's not going too good. Why don't you come out and uh, hang out with us and play with us tomorrow and bring your gun and we can play some guns. And Ben's like, well, if we want to build the dam, we could always do it this way. And this little 11-year-old comes up with the idea for a dam. And it is, uh, the narrator tells us, it is an exact diagram of what would be called a coffer dam. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he just comes up with it on the fly. And so they decide that they're all going to start working on it together. And there's just a really cool moment where he says, then before the water can wash them away, you fill up the space between them with rocks and sand. And Bill says, we do. Or he says, we. And he goes, huh? And he says, we do it. And, oh, Ben said, feeling and looking, he was sure, extremely stupid. But he didn't care if he looked stupid because he suddenly felt very happy. Yeah. Just being included and being, like, brilliant. It was, uh, I'm tearing up a little bit just because I, I got me good. Um, mm-hmm. So they uh, split for the night, and they're all going to come back the next day to build that dam together. Yep. Bill, um, we get a moment where he comes home. Um, we find out his parents' names are Zach and Sharon. Um, Zach and Sharon are not doing well with the death of their son, uh, and they are not... 
and it's interesting because even Bill notices it. They're not mourning together. They're mourning separately, um, and they're not comforting each other, and they're not helping each other get through this. So it's making it worse. Uh, and Bill notices it, and he says, why are they crying so far apart? And then he shoves the thought away, and he goes into his brother's room. His brother had this photo album, and he's flipping through this photo album, and he's positive the last time he was looking through it, something happened, and he just wants to check and see if it's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. He gets to the very final picture, and there's a little... Uh, uh, it's a school picture of Georgie. Thank you. Yeah, I could not... And Georgie's eyes yeah. in the picture look up at him, almost as if to say, like, uh, see you soon, Bill. Maybe tonight. And uh, he drops the book, backs up, and then the book just starts bleeding. And blood mm-hmm. just starts coming out of the book. And that's the end of that. So that's the end of that chapter. Bill... If we look at this as Pennywise using psychological terror to weaken his victims almost like a spider does before she injects the venom to paralyze and kill his vic- their victim, that is kind of what this is. You know, it is, it is trapping them in that web, using that terror of being stuck there to tire them out, to make their spirit weaker and less mm-hmm. willing so that when, when it, it does try to cast its hypnosis to, to suck your soul out, it has less resistance. Right. Right. So um, we get into the last chapter of this section. This one is called One of the Missing, A Tale from the Summer of 58. Um, it's very, again, this is where we need to know the narrator and what is the narrator's role in some way. Um, and I think that we'll get there at some point. So, you know, and the, it is starting to get a little bit clearer. But we get a collection of newspaper clippings, all from uh, about a year. And they're from the story of a boy who was thought to have gone missing. And then it came out that his stepfather had actually murdered his little brother. And so because he had murdered his little brother, he's immediately suspected of murdering this kid as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And it just kind of gets blown under the rug, and nobody cares about it anymore. The very first well, sure, thing sure, because they've got the murderer, and yeah. he's already the, convicted, and so we're just the, not going to worry about it anymore. And the very first thing this chapter says is they weren't all found. No, they weren't all found, and from time to time, wrong assumptions were made. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a long amount of things in this town's history that, yes, they aren't exactly... Uh, Yes, they're not exactly going to fit the exact bill of what Pennywise has been doing, but it was Pennywise. He did it. Right. Yeah. Um, and we get this moment where we, we follow Eddie, and uh, he ends up, uh, you know, for him, it's interesting, too, because the creature is like some, uh, it's like a fish monster. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely like this, it changes depending on what it thinks will scare you most. So it's definitely trying to get that. You know, it changes into this monster, and then it changes back into the clown, and he's... Billy, he picks up Billy, and he's trying to, like, Billy... uh, Eddie, not Billy. Eddie's trying to, like, find a zipper, and he thinks it's a costume Mm -hmm. of some sort, and then it just rips uh, Eddie's head off. Right. And so, you know, he really recognizes, and I think he becomes to... uh, He really accepts in that moment that it wasn't a costume. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, that... 
so uh, we zoom in, and now we're going to come over to Mike's perspective. Um, Mike gets out of bed randomly, and he starts pedaling over to the canal, and he doesn't understand why. He just has this, like, this, this... He drive, is this, uh, this drive. This, uh, yeah, this just... He's the historian. He needs to know everything firsthand so he can write it down and tell the story of it. Right. Even and at 11. Even, even at, at 11. 11. And he gets there and he finds a pocket knife with EC engraved into it. Uh, and he finds some uh, um, cloth and it's got some blood on it. And he looks down into the canal and he sees a monster there. Or... Um, like a, a black spot there and mm-hmm. he spooks himself and he throws the knife at it and then he runs away um right. and you know even mike has this thought he realizes like definitely set that investigation back because i threw that knife in there a lot harder to find him now um but he needed to know what happened he needed to know that there's other stuff like that these kids are dying you know what i mean right. he needed his yeah. call to action and i think that Ben and uh, Ben, Bill, Eddie, and Richie—they all seem that they're going to have their call to action together. Mike, Bev, and that's it. Mike and Bev—they seem that they have to have their separate calls to action so that way they can join in. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So we get into the last bit of this is from Mike's perspective. Uh, Mike easily has the best parents in the novel, it seems. Um, his dad's Definitely awesome. the most engaged, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, he works on a farm. His family owns a farm, so uh, he's doing chores. He's got uh, yard work and that kind of stuff. But his dad, um, he has a saying. He says, you know, a boy needs to be fishing, even if he's not actually fishing. Um, and he just really means that, you know, a, a person needs to have their recreation time they need to have yes, time that they, they need can to have that downtime and just rest and enjoy whatever they want to do and so he ends up uh um getting a note from his father that day that says i want you to ride your bike out to the old uh, machinery shop that is where this huge explosion took place and killed uh 88 or no 103 kids or something like that mm-hmm. because Pennywise, um, you know, and it's all speculation at this point, but it's speculated that Pennywise caused the explosion of this uh, ironworks factory and killed all these children during an Easter egg event. Right. Um, so uh, he goes and uh, and also, really, this is something that got me, dude, and I was just like, oh, man, didn't even think about this. There's a note in the very end of the note, um, and be back before dark, you know why. Mm-hmm. This is... The way that he writes Mike is how you should write black people, in my opinion. And I know that I say that as a white man. So it's like, eh, I don't really get much of it. But if that one sentence right there tells you that he's black. This yes. is a sundown town. And that's disgusting. It sucks that Derry is a sundown town. But that's the reality of the case. Right. That's the reality of the case, especially in 1958. Mm-hmm. So I just think that, you know, at no point has he told us that these characters are black but from that one sentence and from like the few, like little bit else I do know, like I know that this is now a, a family of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that like it's just that is, that was sublime. That is really good. I, I really enjoyed that a lot. 
So um, he takes off on his bike, and Mike goes down to this old factory. Um, and in the note, it had actually said to avoid the cellar and don't go down into the cellar. So he ends up um, going into this uh, the base floor of the factory, and he sees the cellar, and he's like, man, I wonder what's down there. And so he just... He's not able to stop himself, and he gets yeah. a moment where he has this sense of cold, frightened energy around him. And so us as the audience know Pennywise is there. Right. It's there. You know, that telepathic, like, reality-bending world is there. He gets to the edge of the stairs. He looks down, and there's a tiny little bird there. And he's like, oh, that's a cute little bird. Um, and then the bird looks up at him, and it starts to fly up at him. And as it flies up at him, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. Uh, and he ends up running and hiding inside of an old silo. Uh, and a the bird is a smokestack. Mm-hmm. And the bird tries to force its way into the smokestack. Um, and he has these, uh, in, as the bird is trying to force its way in, he has these broken tile pieces. And so he takes all these tile pieces and he's just throwing it at the bird to try and like protect himself. And one of these tile pieces, in the way that he describes it, he says it's like someone was behind him throwing it and helping him throw it. He throws it, and it hits this bird in the eye. And the bird squawks real big and retreats. Um, and uh, he's just uh, is kind of hesitant for a second. And then the bird swoops back in, grabs him, um, and he ends up uh, just screaming, let me go, and twisting away from it and throwing more stuff at it. And then the bird ends up getting away. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, though. The bird doesn't leave until he starts praying, like, please, God, please, God, help me. Um so you know it is that interesting like uh, if we're going to look at the characters that might have like uh, the white in them you know that, that have that ability here I think that that's Mike here you know he's right. the he is their uh, 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 mother Abigail he's going to be the one communicating with the forces of good yes um, so he ends up uh, surviving that encounter and uh, he gets out of there runs back home and is um he gets home and he is visibly shaken um and his dad is like you okay and he's like no i'm not good at all uh he's like do you want to talk about it and he's like i do not want to talk about it and he's like okay maybe i shouldn't have let you go out to that place all by yourself i'm really sorry that was not good and he's like it's okay i know you didn't mean to do that um he said uh and he says well go ahead and go get you some sausages yeah go get some dinner and and you know recover and don't go out there again and we snap back into the future where Mike has just thrown that knife into the canal. He hears something coming. Something is dragging itself down that pipe. And he turns around and runs away. And he gets home. Um, and he sees the next day that there is a headline for a missing boy named Eddie uh, Charleston or something. Or Cochran. Cochran, yep. And he thinks of the pocket knife with the initials EC on it. We end the chapter. Bada boom, bada bing. That's the first 280 pages of it. Wow. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. Woo, that's a lot woo. that happens. Welcome to the first, uh, welcome to the season one, or welcome to the anniversary episode, to say the least. This is a longer boy. Um, you know, I think the nice thing is, though, as I was looking at it, the next section. We either need to read to either either 541 or we need to read to 646. So, you know, we're we're cutting our way through this book. Yes. 
Yeah, four I episodes. Think. I really think that four episodes is what we're going to do here. The way this mm-hmm. book is broken down, I just feel like that's that's the way we need to do it. Absolutely. Um, so I think, uh, let's see, uh, first impressions just through this. Any like Anything interesting as you've been reading through it again, Kim, that you've noticed? Anything that you like, man, this is interesting and like this was a really good moment of foreshadowing I didn't notice before? Well, you know, it's funny that you ask that because, you know, as we were talking through the six phone calls, this was really the first time that I made the connection that all the memories came back for Stan at once. Yeah. You and know, like, I knew that, that whatever it was that hit Stan harder. And as I was reading it through it this time, I was like, oh, oh, I know what happened here. I know why it happened this way. And I've read this book. This is probably the seventh or eighth time I've read this book. And we've talked about this, that you get something different every time. And it hit Stan all at once. That's why he did what he did. That's why Absolutely. it was like a jack-in-the-box. Um, and I think, know, too, it's it's interesting that it makes sense, too, that he's the first one that you hear mm-hmm. about it. You know, he's the first one that Mike calls. He finds out all this stuff, and the turtle isn't ready for, to protect him from the powers of it. And as right. soon... It's almost it's like it reminds me of like Randy Flagg, you know? It, it's like Legion. As soon as you think of Legion or like you have all of these like things, there's just it, it, there are these tricks of the trade that when you think of these characters, they know about it somehow. Right. Um and so as soon as Stan does remember all of that stuff, yeah, like Pennywise takes advantage of that and he gets him. Right. Well, and you know, it it kind of makes a, a Mm, twisted sort of sense you know because bill talks about how he was scared he was going to kill himself as a kid yep and that stan was the one that made them make the promise stan is the one that cut the the used the places in their their hands the glass to cut their hands it was stan so it makes sense that stan was first and it makes sense that stan took it got got the worst of it Mm -hmm. um and and so there was a there was a circle there a connection made that I hadn't really fully gotten before. Um, I feel like once we've read the novels, if you read through those six phone calls, I bet you that it tells you everything you need to know about the rest of the story. Just foreshadows it slowly. You know what I mean? Um, to a degree, yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of information in that. Even section. one of the first things that. Um, you know, uh, Stanley says is the turtle couldn't help them. Yep. You know, so it it immediately even sets up that, like, foreshadowing of that turtle being an incredibly large-scale help or disadvantage or assistance Mm -hmm. to them of some sort. Right. Um, So just, uh, yeah, no, I think, no, I think that's one of the best parts about our podcast is that you get to notice those things for the, like, the umpteenth time. And I just get to feel it out for the first time and get those base reactions. Um, it is, it's been a very big slow burn, but I feel like we're at the point now where it's about to drop into some heavy hit in action. I think the next section that we cover in, I think the episode will be shorter, but I think we'll have more plot to cover. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely we will. Um, so uh, just uh, some theories for you real quick, right? Yeah, give us some theories. Um, I do think that the balloons, those are the souls that Pennywise has collected, and he's using all of that energy to leave this plane, uh, and he's stuck here. I don't, I don't think he, Pennywise, I, I don't want to keep saying he, I want to say they. I don't think that they want to be here. 
in particular. I do think that, like, they got, like, a pretty sweet gig and all this, like, free food, essentially. And, like, maybe it's not food. Maybe it's energy or power. And it's a Monsters, Inc. situation like we were talking about. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that's going to depend, uh, as we get further in, why Pennywise does these killings. And why does it seem to be every 28 years? Um, right. It's such a... It, it, it's an interesting thing, you know. Um, you read in a lot of other magic concepts and ideas and stuff that, uh, you know, Harry Potter, for example, seven is the most magical number. Um, Merlin says that uh, it's not seven as well. No. Right. Yeah, seven as well for the mm-hmm. Knights of the Round Table. Um, you know, um, somebody, there's another book series that says it's four. Um, but it's these multiples of four and seven that are always magical numbers. And wouldn't you know it, if 28, it's a multiple of four and seven. Um, And so, you know, I think that that makes a lot of supernatural sense in the way that he's building this person, this, 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 this thing. Um, Right. um, The turtle has got some real good foreshadowing and obviously can't help them. I think that I'm hitting the head on the nail with the telepathic powers of it. So I think that, you know, it only makes sense that it's main enemy. This turtle also deals in telepathic powers as well. Right. Um, we know we didn't talk too much about it, but there's a lot of touch points and stuff. I thought that was really fun. There was one where it talked about a guy serving his uh, sentence in Shawshank. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a part where it talked about um, where Pennywise says that he is Legion. Um, so confirming that he is either Randy Flag or connected to Randy Flag in a very obscure dimensional way that we as three dimensional human beings don't understand. Right. Um, and then, uh, oh, there's another one. She said something about a hotel in um, Colorado as well at one point. Yeah. And also, um, I, I thought, no, the most, well, the and, coolest part was Ben is the architect behind the uh, outdoor center that he is in Boulder that, um, what's his face? The little Harold gets right. all the explosives from. Right. And, you know, Ben lives near Hemingford Home in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. You know, this this world-renowned architect that, you know, is building in London and South America, but lives in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Just happens to be right where Mother Abigail is from. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, cross-referencing with the stand. Mm-hmm. You know, it really, it makes you wonder, uh, maybe... The stand takes place. Well, no, I guess it's in '92, so it's not 28 years. It would have been fun right. if it would have had some kind of like timeline that lined up like that, right? But but no, say lovey. So um, there's a lot of touchstone stuff, and I really like that. I do think that that for me gives this book an immediate sense of there's gonna be longer lasting effects for the Steve Averse, you know. And I do know that like this turtle is one of his main like characters and like everything and i think that's really cool because i do know that like there's a lot of turtle myths uh just in existence in general like most of any uh original race that exists in the world has a myth about how the earth is on the back of a turtle right and that's just what we all live on Um, well and that is you know that is a mythos that goes way back mm -hmm. to the beginning there's even a mythos too that like we're on a turtle and then that turtle is on another turtle and then mm-hmm. that turtle is on the universe turtle. Um, and so it's just like this never laying layers of turtles. Um, and I think uh, it's interesting to see how Steve's going to like lean into the 
older legends and myths here to like see how that comes through. Um, right. I. What else? I don't really think that there's too much uh, theory-wise. I feel like we got a lot of exposition. Um, you know, and I feel like I can't... The downside is, is I can't theorize on, like, Pennywise all that much or anything like that because I do know, like, they're a little bit of the movie's origin. So I'm interested to see. Um, I think it'll be a little bit more gruesome than the movies. It's already been a little bit more gruesome. I am very interested to get to the orgy scene. Um, it's been a meme for so long that I am interested to read it and see what it actually is about. I have a feeling it's going to be in, like, episode three, if I had to be honest. Yeah. I ended I'm enjoying this quite a bit. I really like it a lot. Um, it's not beating Gunslinger for me, though. I'll just put no, that out there for no. everyone right now. I can I can see that. So I can see that. Um, but man, I love this story. Oh, it's incredible! <laughs> I'm, I'm really so, excited to keep going. Well, and I'm really enjoying going through it with a different mindset this time. Yeah, the analytical mindset of it. Yep. Um, yep. Which is why I think I made that connection this time. Yeah. Definitely, like, looking for those little clues and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you have any thoughts, opinions, or general feedback about this novel or any of the other novels we've uh, read and gone through, please give us an email at firsttimethroughpodcast.gmail.com. Add us on Facebook and send us a message there. Post it at us. Um, you can text me if you want. Uh, <laughs> you know, just uh, ask me for my phone number. I'm not just going to put it out there on the international airwaves for no reason. Um, and just let us know if you agree with us, if you think that we're very far off base or what it is. Um, yep, I think give that, us some feedback. We like to know, we want to know what you're thinking too. We want to know if mm-hmm. you think that we are just absolutely crazy or if you think that we are spot on or somewhere in between. I think my biggest theory right now that I want a little bit of feedback on, and I want your opinion on it too, and like try not to be too spoilery. I really do think that these balloons have got to hold the souls of all these people that he's gotten. And that's why he's, you know, he's got, like, some control over these balloons. And I don't think he would just, like, he's not an airbender. He's not just going to be able to control the air in these balloons. But he can, it makes sense that he has, like, an interplanar ability to control spirits. And so he fills these balloons up with souls and spirits. And then he can send these balloons at people as, like, a diversion while he tries to attack them. Yeah, I, I don't hate your theory. It's all just a matter of what does he need this power for? Why mm-hmm. is this the precursor to Monsters Inc? Is that where Pennywise comes from? Is that what all this is about? Is this just to start Monsters Inc? Who knows? I don't. Who's yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, we we do know that there's somebody over at Pixar that's a Stephen King fan. Absolutely there is. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, well, guys, is there anything else you want to say, Kim? Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank come you for joining us. Come back next week. Absolutely. Hey, come back next week for an episode on our normal day. Yep. Enjoy your day. bonus episode. Thank you for listening. Happy one year anniversary to first time through New Eyes on Castle Rock. This has And been... happy birthday, Otto. Thank you. Uh, I'm turning 29. It's terrifying. I'll be 30 next year. I don't know what to do with myself. Um honestly yep that's really all i got for that i don't want to think about it anymore uh eek so anyways (laughs) thank you uh this has been our first time through pages one through 290 of the absolute epic yarn by stephen king the classic novel it we hope you enjoyed your first time through see you soon bye thank you
First Time Through New Eyes on Castle Rock is created by Autumn Mullins and Kim Payne. Our art is done by Kurt Payne at Who Knew Art, and our music is done by Jason Rager. Everything's original and incredible. If you'd like to support us or any of our artists, please get in touch with us or go to our Patreon and please pledge. All of that money directly goes to help us produce more shows, and we're so thankful for it. Thank you for listening.